I've done the top 10 weather stories for 26 years. It's the 26th year. And I've never seen a year like this. It's got everything about it. And it's scary, but it's riveting in terms of what's happening. And you know, I had more interviews this year from the media from around the world, from BBC, from French radio, from Australia, Singapore, United States, all focused on that heat dome. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me from Environment Canada and from Barrie, Senior Climatologist David Phillips. How are you today? Hey, David, I'm very well. Thank you for inviting me aboard and uh, looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for making the time for this. So how does someone who was once a high school teacher become one of Canada's foremost weather critics that we know? Well, I must say I've always wanted to be a teacher ever since grade four. And um, I got the bug of weather and climate and doing research. And I always felt I could go and teach. Now, I did teach actually in a classroom for about a month before I took the job with Environment Canada or back then, back in 1967, it was called Meteorological Branch of Canada. And I've been with the department for 53 years. And in a way, David, I have satisfied my first love, which is to be a a teacher. And so I am a teacher. My students are across the country. I have, uh, you know, 40 million of them. My job is to kind of entertain people about the weather to teach them meteorology, to um, answer their questions, and to hear complaints about forecasts. So I I, I think in a way I enjoy what I do and I don't have necessarily the discipline problems, which I felt I couldn't deal with as a teacher. Speaking of entertainment, did you ever think you'd be getting into the calendar design business that you sometimes venture to? No, you know, I'm I'm, clearly, I'm not an innovator in the sense that I, I could know what, what would work and what wouldn't. But I was passionate for uh, volunteer weather observers, people who go into their backyard or churchyard or farmyard and, and take observations about the weather. And they do it as volunteers. And I was so impressed by these people. I took, vol- I took weather observations for a week at university, and it just about killed me getting there early in the morning and, and staying till, till after four at night. But these people, some of them have been doing it for 50 years. And one fellow in Chanty Bay uh, near Barrie has been doing it for decades. And he's my hero. He's, he's one that is very uh, unselfish. They're, they're volunteers. They're not paid for it. They take observations. And, and they're really, to me, that kind of the modern-day explorer or, or discoverer in Canada. They're, they're tracking the weather and they're taking observations and they're recording it and putting it in our archives and so that we can use that information in the future. And that's a multitude of users. So I had this idea once many, many years ago about uh, producing a calendar as a kind of a Christmas gift for these volunteers. And I said to management, well, we're not in the calendar business, but I have an idea that it could, there's so many weather stories, we could put a story in every day, you know, about a tornado that hit or a uh, a fish fall from the sky or some weird, wild and wacky or extreme weather event. And my gosh, it, it went on for 32 years, made millions of dollars for the Canadian government. Not a penny for me, but that didn't matter. I had so much fun and talking and sharing. And, you know, David, it really was my ticket to, to broadcast studios where I could go across the country 
I could talk about climate change and the summer or the winter's weather coming up and, and hey, I mean, share, uh, uh, and people might buy the calendar. It, it didn't, my salary didn't depend upon it. So I didn't care whether they mentioned the calendar or not. I just had a chance to, to speak to people from Boobies, Newfoundland to Yo-Yo, British Columbia, across this great country of Canada. And, um, and so it was sort of my claim to fame. And as a scientist, you know, on my tombstone would be the creator of the weather trivia calendar. And, and you know, that kind of bothered me in a way <laughs> until I realized that, you know, to turn Canadians on to the weather, you have to entertain them first. I called it uh, edutainment. Maybe you have to tell them a story or two or a little, a little funny thing, an extreme event to add, add kind of interest. And then they're going to listen to you, what you want to say, maybe the, the hard stuff about climate change or uh, being safe from weather. And so I found it was a great technique that I had to, to engage Canadians about their passion. And, you know, David, it's an easy job that I have. I mean, if I was in Malta or Cyprus, I mean, turning people onto the weather might be a challenge where tomorrow is like yesterday. But in Canada, weather this afternoon could be different than this morning. I mean, my gosh, I woke up this morning and it was just, I couldn't see a cloud in the sky. You could see the sun arising. And then within an hour, you couldn't see. It was just total cloud cover with a few flurries in the air. So my sense is, um, you know, we're never boring when we talk about the weather because we don't have any boring weather. And I think that Canadians from coast to coast to coast are professionals and experienced at dealing with the weather because they face such difficult weather that I think in many ways, that's what really helps us in Canada. We're not surprised by anything. And, and so I think it's, my job is really just to keep the conversations flowing, like a, a Johnny Appleseed, you know, to, to create that interest and, and I've enjoyed it for over a half a century. Wow. And to the best of my knowledge, you've applied that same principle of edutainment with your annual top 10 lists of uh, the biggest weather stories in the country. Now, I know that's not out yet, at least from what I can find, but I've got to ask, would the BC flooding, the Lytton BC heat, would those be some candidates for number one? Oh, clearly. I really think that you've nailed it. I mean, those are two all time. And when you think about the flood, the most expensive, the most destructive. And then we have also in the Lytton and the terrible heat dome in this early summer, uh, the most, the deadliest uh, weather event in Canadian history. And those superlatives are all about this year. I've never, I've done the top 10 weather stories for 26 years. It's the 26th year. And I've never seen a year like this. It's got everything about it. And it's scary, but it's riveting in terms of what's happening. And, you know, I had more interviews this year from the media from around the world, from BBC, from French radio, from Australia, Singapore, United States, all focused on that heat dome in, uh, in British Columbia. I mean, we were on the map everywhere. It wasn't just about hockey. Hey, it was about weather. And then the atmospheric rivers in November, a similar kind of response from around the world. I think, you know, we're known as the Great White North, the land of ice and snow. We're known for our, we are the second coldest country in the world, the snowiest country in the world. But this year, we're known for our extreme weather. Clearly, the, uh, the top 10 weather stories was difficult this year because there were 100 stories I could start with. Every one of them was a, a possibility for the top 10, but I had to boil it down to only 10. And in fact, David, 
I think the five of the first of the top 10 stories, the first five are about British Columbia. That province has been, has been punished, has in fact been obliterated in parts. I mean, beautiful British Columbia isn't so beautiful anymore. And I think that they have seen everything in one year that uh, somebody could see in a lifetime. So I think it's been bad luck. I think it's climate change. I think it's fact that what we've learned, David, from that is that one extreme can cause the impacts of other extremes. And let me explain that. I think that's a very important concept mm-hmm. is that we saw the fires, saw the intense heat, the drought, which fed the fires, scorched all of huge amounts of landscape. I mean, the fire season is the third worst in history in that province. And then it such charred the landscape. There was no vegetation left. And when the rains came during the wet season, I mean, the wet season is September, October, November, and goes on, that, that landscape couldn't hold back the, uh, the rain or the melted snow. And you ended up with incredible floods, a slew of debris flows and mud flows and rock slides that really changed the geography of British Columbia. And to think that this year, David, 2021 could be called in 2050 a normal year is absolutely frightening. Hmm. Let's dig into that a little bit. It's because of climate change that you would attribute this to becoming the new normal. How does somewhere like Lytton all of a sudden take the title for the hottest day on record in Canada, but the previous mark was set about 80 years before? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, you can't say, I always think that when people ask the question, did climate change cause that extreme weather, that tornado in Barrie, that hurricane in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, or, or that heat wave or drought somewhere else? I always think that's the wrong question to ask, because we know that what causes weather, there's a multitude of factors. Could be the jet stream, La Nina, El Nino, the... Uh, water temperatures, the sea ice, there's a multitude of factors. And all of them have to come together. It's like baking a souffle or a, or a delicate dish that, you know, you forget one item and, and it fails, you say. And so I think there are a number of factors that come together produce the weather. But if you ask it this way, did climate change contribute to that extreme? I think the answer is a resounding yes because we've warmed up the atmosphere. It holds more moisture, so it can rain harder when it does rain uh, now than it was, say, 20 or 30 years ago. So I think there is an element of that. So rather than saying, did it cause it, did it add to it? Did it exacerbate it? Did it make it worse? And I think in almost every case with heat waves and floods, there is a certain amount. Hey, maybe 5 or 10%, it could be 50%. But it clearly is different than the kind of events that our grandparents did. You know, David, it's interesting that what we've seen this year is not new weather. You know, it's it's our grandparents' weather. I mean, it is just the fact that what's different about it is the character or the personality of it, the nature of it. It's more extreme, more widespread, out of season, out of place. Uh, nuisance events are becoming catastrophic. Um, and, and so, these are making these storms stormier, floods floodier, or droughts droughtier. And, and, and I think it really is the statistics of those, of those changes that are really doing a number on us. And of course, 
David, the other thing too is that, you know, built in the 50s, 60s, hey, we could handle it back then, but the climate has changed. And yet we're still sucking off the same infrastructure that we did 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so we haven't sort of weatherproofed our communities. We haven't increased the strength and the, and the sort of the life of our infrastructure. And that is adding to that. And that's what we saw this, um, uh, this year in British Columbia with the bridges and the roads and the, and the infrastructure all just totally uh, devastated by the extreme weather. It's because the, you know, the infrastructure was maybe weakened by earlier events, but also it wasn't meant to handle this kind of new climate. David, the trends that you mentioned are pointing towards more of these extremes becoming a normal and we can do things like reduce our emissions and improve infrastructure and have uh, more people educated like yourself that can predict and, and forecast. But do you think we can catch up and, and try to mitigate some of that future damage or is it inevitable? Well, David, I, I sometimes I kind of wax and wane on it. Some days I'm depressed about it. Some days I'm optimistic. I particularly get a lot of hope and spirit from young people, seeing what they're doing, how fiercely committed they are. And I, I think that we're, we're headed in the right direction. And other times I, I sing things that just, I just wondered if we're, we're doomed. I don't think the world's going to end in 2056. I, I think we need to have hope. And I try to lecture on hope. And I think I'm a poor person at that. I'm like the black cloud that hangs over you. I mean, I, uh, because I, I, I feel that we haven't made progress. What we saw in 2021 may be normal in 2050. I, I, I shudder to think of that. Uh, and what we need to do is to accept the fact that the world is different, it's changing, and we need to prepare for it uh, as individuals, as neighborhoods, as cities, particularly in cities. I mean, you can't expect the federal government to bail you out every time Mother Nature misbehaves. So people are going to have to do it on their own weatherproof their their property and their neighborhood and community and and just do things that you you know see as david i often say you can't prevent that hazard from coming your way but you can prevent it from becoming a disaster by preparing for it and responding to it i think that the loss of life and the and, and livelihoods um the loss of communities is it's often, you know, long after the headlines are over, long after people are getting back to normal, you're having people who are still the victims of climate change, are the real refugees. And instead of refugees being around the world, we're seeing refugees in our own country, and particularly in First Nations communities. I mean, they've been hard hit. I mean, every year up in northern Ontario, they, they evacuate people because of spring flooding, because they don't have the infrastructure to handle that, what is inevitable. And then in the fire season, they transport them out of their, their communities and bring them to major cities and entertain them for, uh, for two months. And people have forgotten about them. And they are, some, in some cases, they haven't even got back home yet. I mean, these are terrible victims of the, of the changes that we've, um, that we've seen. So mm. I think we need to, to wake up and, and do things differently. And that's why I, I think at times I'm, I'm disappointed and depressed. And other times I'm elated by what I see, the progress that we're doing to try to not just, it's not a fight against climate change. It's just learning to do better what we do with the climate we got and the climate we're going to get. Oh, it is devastating how it's 
impact of people's lives, both in fatality and in movement across the country. You mentioned that so many of these places where we're seeing these weather impacts are in fact in the south of Canada now, where so much is urbanized and we've seen these green lands pushed out and, and paved over. And so many of my listeners in particular can resonate with a reference that I've heard you use a number of times in your weather career that Fort McMurray five years ago went up in flames. It was almost biblical, like Sodom and Gomorrah. When you see a community like that go up and when, when the, the projections, like as you said earlier, in BC being such a target, does this uh, change the future of the way that people see this province or other cities, maybe even like Barrie that are maybe more set up to be hit harder by severe weather patterns? Well, I think some communities are more vulnerable than others. I think that we want to live by the sea. Uh, I mean, a third of the people in the world live within 100 kilometers of the ocean. And these are graveyards in the waiting. I mean, when you have sea, and even if it's the same storm, and we know storms are stormier, but even you're dealing with the same storm, because the sea levels are higher, then it's going to make the impact, the inundation, much greater than in the past. It's important that we see these changes that are putting our communities at risk. And nobody's immune from it. And I think that one of the things that communities need to do is to learn what they're vulnerable for. I mean, it, it may not be hurricanes for us, although it can be residuals or remnants of hurricanes. And certainly it's not typhoons. But um, there are things that do face us. I mean, earthquakes are an issue for British Columbia. Well, I mean, they're not so much for here, although we can get rumbles of that. So I think communities need to understand what they're vulnerable for. It could be heat. It could be drought. And, and then to try and, and weather it, to do things that could lessen it, to mitigate that, that impact on, on future life. And, and one of the things that I really heartens me is that I see the importance that people place to uh, wetlands you know, these areas that are holding water. They're the lungs and the kidneys of, of humanity. And, um, and I think it's so depressing to me to see these, these, this land built on condos and farmland and, and not leave it sort of as, green, as sort of green infrastructure. We want to turn it to gray infrastructure, to our peril. And so I think the more we recognize that nature can help us to buffer us from itself, then I think... Um, we're in better shape. And I see things that governments do, like provincial government, in terms of, of allowing conservation areas to sell land to developers. I mean, I just, that bothers me to a great deal. I don't think we put proper value on some of these, these areas that seem unproductive, when in fact they are, are life-preserving for us. And so I think we need to approach things differently. And it's not just about throwing money at it. It's about just... Uh, dealing with it in a in a proper way and sometimes these these measures to protect us more are not really billion dollar items they're sometimes they're just uh, just leg legislation or bylaws or urban mapping or some of these things that can be done in communities and you know david the irony is this that the more you weatherproof your community from climate change it makes your community more valuable more desirable i mean increases property value it makes you make insurance less for you because you've um, you've weatherproofed your 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 community, and uh, people want to develop in communities that are 
are are more protected by the by the elements. In light of that, David, you know, I can really hear your passion come out in this conversation and and obviously given the the, the time that you're still putting to Environment Canada as a Christian, I, I've got the conviction that I need to do a better job at stewarding the land that that God is that I believe God has given to me. Uh, where does your conviction come from? Well, it, it I'm not sure. I, nobody's ever asked me that question, David. I, I think it's it's my energy. I like to. It's almost like a disciple in a way, in terms of trying to spread the the message and the and the story and and having a receptive audience to hear that. I think that's a turn on for, for me. Uh, people don't just uh, give you that glassed over look. They, they want to learn more that, that, that need. So, so I think that clearly that's maybe, I think a solution is that we need to, uh, to look at some of the things that we're doing and to learn from it and try to do things differently. I think we need to uh, practice sustainability. I think we're on the planet and we don't own it. We're just, uh, occupying it. And, and I think there's a, a mission there for everybody to try and, and convince people that, that really it's in their hands. I mean, it is uh, and not to point fingers. I think that's not productive, but to just make people understand. And so one of my messages always for young people is to, is to spread the word. I mean, to be like a disciple and, and, and kind of say, well, you know, this is really what we should do. This is what climate change is about. But not David be combative. I think there are a lot of lessons uh, here, and and I I hope that we practice them more and see it as a challenge and as um as a way of saving planet Earth. Wonderful. I like your delicate and yet forthright approach, David Phillips, senior climatologist for Environment Canada. Thanks so much for this time. Well, David, thank you. I've enjoyed. You covered the waterfront. You brought a lot out of me more than anybody does. I've been entertained and enjoyed your quick response, your articulation, and your uh, and you kept it flowing very nicely. I, I congratulate you on that. But David, thank you very much for inviting me aboard, and, and I've spent a, a wonderful time. And if you want to learn any more about Dave Phillips and his more than 50 years of work in weather, just head to the show notes at davidmanmedia.com. Next time on Culture of the Crossroads. He is a distinguished journalist in Canada who's done work with the National Post and the Walrus. But what we're going to focus in is his ghostwriting for our Prime Minister. Jonathan Kay was the writer primarily of Trudeau's book, Common Ground. We're going to dig into some compelling findings from that. Justin Trudeau went through a soul-searching period and many of your listeners probably know about the Alpha Course. It's not like a sort of milquetoast type from what I understand, it's a seriously religious experience that the people are looking for when they take that course. And by the way, nowhere in our conversations did Trudeau ever disparage Christianity or faith. For Culture at a Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today. And we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.